0: Many of you are regular, some of you may have caught the tension of uh, the title, so I'm not sure exactly what the motivation is for tonight, Uh, but we want to look at a few scripture passages that we really want to dive into and say, you know, what is the interpretation? So are we looking at something that God just... Specifically says, this is the rule. This is what I want you to live by. Or is this a promise that God gives? Or is this just like a, a principle that we're to put and apply to our lives to help us in our walk with the Lord? Or is there a tendency sometimes to misinterpret a passage of Scripture that wasn't intended for uh, the way in which we, we draw conclusions from it? So you may have in mind some of those passages of Scripture that uh, you Have heard, or you've uh, kind of investigated or studied, that you could share with us as well. Uh, So, if I don't cover any of these, what I'm going to ask is if you don't mind emailing me. You know, this is a passage of scripture that maybe even had a question about, as far as you know, is this the correct interpretation of this passage, etc. So, because I'm not going to cover probably every single passage that there is. That could be misinterpreted, but we're going to c- cover a number of passages, and then we want to have time to go through what are the pr- the principles, what are the keys for us in interpreting Scripture. So when we look at a passage, how do we go about finding out what the intended uh, context of the text is and how we can draw out the application for our lives. So the first passage we're going to look at this evening is in 1 Corinthians. So we're going to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. A wonderful passage of scripture, but one that many at times have kind of drawn a misinterpretation of the scripture, and I don't think it's always saying what some people think it does. So, chapter ten, verse. We'll start with twelve. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands, uh, that he stands, take heed lest he fall. Verse thirteen. No temptation has overcome you that is not common to men, but God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Problem with the passage could be (laughs) some Christians have claimed that this verse is a promise. It's a promise of God, that God will never allow a Christian or yourself or themselves to experience more difficulties than they can handle. All right? And so this promise of Scripture here is, well, see, God won't give us more than we can handle in life. So everything He gives us, we can handle. The problem is in the larger passage of Scripture here, He's dealing with temptation and our ability to withstand temptation. So the danger in the text and the misinterpretation portion of it is to to draw the promise to every experience that I deal with. People deal with some pretty significant things in life and that can shatter your confidence in the Word of God if you're drawing a misinterpreted interpretation of the text, because then, if this text isn't true, then the other ones aren't true too. Because people can experience what we would think is more than they really should be able to handle, uh, and we know that yes, God and His strength and His power and He can He can help us through these things. But in context here, we also got to keep in mind it's dealing with temptation, not necessarily everything that we will face in life. Right? And so that's where we've got to kind of make sure that we're understanding the larger context and not drawing a conclusion that's not intended for the audience and for us. God promises that he will always provide a way for us to say no to temptation. Right? Understand, that's what the context is here. There's always a way to say no to temptation. Does it mean, though, that I'm going to be able to withstand every pressure on my own that God brings to me? Okay? In fact, Paul learned from his experience that God will allow us to face circumstances that could be beyond our ability to endure so that we can learn to rely on Him. All you have to do is turn over to Second Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 8, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength, right? We are so burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. That's the same person writing the text that we looked at in First, in first Corinthians 10. Right, So there was situations where Paul himself even felt like this is just unbearable to me. But what does God do in those moments? If you were to continue reading, Paul re- gets his strength from God, the risen Christ. Right, Christ was raised from the dead to give him the ability to go through those experiences and rely on God for those things. Thoughts, comments, just before we pass on, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time in each of these passages, so we cover a few of them. Questions or thoughts or your own comment on that? Proverbs 22.6 is a popular verse. Start or train off a child in the way they shall go, and even when they are old, they will not turn from it. A nice promise. And this would be wonderful if it was so true in every situation. However, the misunderstanding of Proverbs 22.6 has, as a promise, led to grief for many, many parents. Right? The book of Proverbs is wisdom literature. Right? It offers general principles for us for successful living. This is what we are to do but it doesn't say to us, this is always the guarantee, right? This isn't always the way it turns out, but this is the principle we live by. This is what we're to do as we face those situations. I am my responsibility to train up my child in the way he should go, right? And we count on the fact that you know, God and his providence and his grace and mercy will allow them to continue on from that but a proverb is not a promise always. right? Instead, let us use it as a tool for wise parenting, wise decision-making, and the fact that we're to entrust our children to the Lord. right? He's a faithful God. And uh, so we trust Him with those things. Oh, well, there's got to be some discussion on this one. What happens if it doesn't ever flesh out, the promise wasn't real, or I didn't do my job, or I wasn't attempting to be faithful. There's a whole lot of things in there you start to mess with your head on, right? Um, And that's, I think, the danger zone of it. The principle there is true. We want to aim for this. This is what we desire to see happen. And it's our parenting and disciple-making. We want to aim there. I think of our own experience, and uh, we have two daughters who are seeking to follow the Lord, and they're committed to Him, and, and as far as a relationship with the Lord. But we have a son who's not. Uh, and on Greg's kind of thought pattern, for us, we we do know. He tells us time and time again, like he knows what he's been we've been attempting to teach. He will carry that with him, but he has chosen. So far, not to, right? But there are things obviously and principles that I'm sure have been as a result of. He just hasn't trusted the Lord with his life. I think the danger in the verse is we think, well, then that means they too will come to know the Lord. Every child that I have will come to know the Lord Our son hasn't come to know know the Lord, but my words always are yet. We're praying for him. We're praying for his soul. Um, I was also going to say, there's a danger, too, with this verse, that we save our children. That it is our responsibility to save our children, and we don't. And we entrust them, like you said, we've been entrusted with them, and we give them back to God because he does the saving work. And so if we firmly hold fast that if we are to train them, then we're guaranteed that they're going to have salvation. That puts the emphasis on us doing the work of their salvation. So we have to be careful not to put that in our minds, that it's us who saves, but it's God. What does David say about... Enduring words, David, Guzak, right? So what does he say about... uh That again. What, what does enduring words say to About the depart old, the... Um, this is a wonderful principle that the Holy Spirit may quicken to a promise for parents troubled over their adult children when a child is trained in the proper way though they may depart for a season and a long season in principle they will return and not depart from it Solomon's own life displayed that this is a principle and not an absolute promise and it does go on from there it's yeah, and I think that's read. the key to interpretation, right, which we will look at is you look at the literature, the style of the intended audience. We're going to look at a number of these principles as far as what they look like. Paul?
1: Uh, just, just looked up the uh, um, Strong's Concordance, and depart is to turn aside is is what that, that word kind of means in the original. mm mm-hmm. um, but also, we need to remember too that I think when we're interpreting Scripture, we interpret Scripture with Scripture, and so we need to we take this verse and we read it uh, in the context that it's in, but also look at the whole of Scripture and how Scripture uh, instructs us and tells us that individuals are called and chosen by God, um, as has been mentioned, and and a few other things, and so we we need to kind of go with that with that full lens of the entirety of Scripture, not just this verse on its own.
0: You mean I can't cherry-pick them? As we call it? Right? Cherry-picking the verse out and using that in context. Matthew 7.1, do not judge or you will be judged. Is all judging wrong? The misinterpretation of the Scripture could be, right? Well, don't judge. Don't judge me. Don't judge. Jud- Jesus didn't condemn a harsh, critical judging motivated by a self righteous. Uh, Jesus did condemn that, right? A uh, harsh judgment, judging by a self-righteous motive, a hypocritical attitude. But in whole, as we just heard from Paul, as far as in the whole of Scripture, God clearly commands Christians to lovingly point out sin, to exhort others to holy living So it is not our place to determine their motives, but it is our responsibility to gently identify behavior that God has already judged as sin. God has already given us what these things are that we are able to point out lovingly and gently. Uh, We're told and commanded in Matthew, we've got to be careful how we approach these things, right? I have to look at the plank in my own eye before I look at the speck in somebody else's eye. There's a knot of principles on how to deal with uh, approaching people uh, in that way. But the verse itself is not a verse to be used. to Many say, well, then you can't, you can't judge somebody else in the sense of helping them along spiritually, right? And that's where they look at. Don't judge, don't judge, don't judge. Well, right, <laughs> not in a wrong way, but we look at Scripture as a whole, and Scripture does tell us that there is a time and a place. Why? Because Scripture is very clear. There's a goal, and the goal is always reconciliation. So it's reconciliation with one another and reconciliation with God himself. So a person with God in reconciliation and then others helps in the area of our judging or, in a sense, coming alongside as we should as believers. That's our responsibility, help one another along in the journey of faith. And so again, cherry picking just the words out of a verse can be a very dangerous thing because that's not the intended passage of Scripture overall. It seems straightforward on the surface. When Jesus was explaining how Christians should live the kingdom life, he explicitly told us not to judge But not anyone ever, That's how it's misunderstood. We need to be careful how we use this verse by understanding what's happening. Namely, this verse comes in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus explains to his followers what a God-first life looks like. He shows them why they don't need to worry, how they should pray, how they should fast, and so on and so on. His main concern, in fact, involves believers and how they treat one another, as far as brothers and sisters in the Lord. So in other words, this really isn't really a discussion of confronting someone in sin as it is examining someone else's Christian, as it is in an examining someone else's Christian walk, right? We're supposed to help one another through. Even still, Jesus tells us that the problem isn't in judging itself. The problem is in that we must judge a matter in the same way that we would want to be judged ourselves, Matthew 7, right? We were to approach the situation as we would want to be approached in, uh, in our situation, right? Jesus pointed out many times as far as how to go about, uh, you know, helping people along. So we've got to be careful, right, about examining first ourselves and then helping one another in love, as we come alongside each other to help each other in our walk with the Lord. When Robert was here, he often emphasized emphasized love and truth go together. You can't separate them. So yes, we need to come alongside of people and lovingly um, point out or help them in their walk. So isn't that the loving act to do, right? Exactly, right. It's almost like the situation we are in today, where our world basically says, "Don't help our children along." In truth, we you know we step back and just let them kind of figure it all out. Well, that's not a loving thing to do. In love, we would want to help them along. The same with the Christian faith, right? In the walk with the Lord.
2: A thought that I've had regarding this when it comes to judging, we could use the word assessing or assessment. Assessing where someone has has failed, like a child or a friend or whatever, and addressing it. But we can do it without a judgmental, like a condemnation type of thing. But there is place for, you know... Well, maybe even elders, coming alongside and helping a person to see, and there's consequences for what you've done. But the attitude with which we do it is very key, and the purpose for which we're doing it is very key. And you think you mentioned something, you know, the goal is for, not reestablishment, what's the word? Uh, reconciliation. Reconciliation, yes.
0: Yeah. Always the goal, for sure. But he is very specific on the fact that we need to examine our own lives first as well, right? We need to be an examination of our own lives and our own situation in uh, our own respect to the Lord and others. And that's a part of what we're supposed to do as far as our Lord's Table Sunday, right? That gives us a time to examine, how, how, you know, is there something that I need to get right here with the Lord in my own life? Uh, or in a relationship, a brother or sister in the Lord. So, Matthew eighteen twenty. So we've looked at a few already. Matthew eighteen twenty. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am. Some say in the midst of them. So, considering just this verse, what would be the Thing that we could gather out of this well, what direction could we go well what's the danger
1: <laughs>
0: excuse me no um, it says where two or three are gathered together I'm in your midst so does that mean if I'm alone he's not with me Good. There's our danger, right? Right. So only when there's two or three gathered together in in my name, then I'm in the midst of them? No. So in context of the larger passage, which is interesting because it kind of goes on the heels of our last discussion, in context we're talking about church discipline, we're talking about helping fellow believers along, right? And so in context we're looking at this larger passage of discipline. So when another believer is outwardly sinning or is somebody who we need to kind of come alongside, if they will not listen to one or two or three believers who who come alongside them and as a church come alongside to help them, the, the Scriptures is telling us that when there's two or three gathered in my name, the Lord's presence is there in the midst of that discipline area. right? So it's specifically in context to a specific situation and dealing with it in the church. We take it as, and I understand where it goes with this. So we're gathered here tonight, so the Lord's with us. There's two or three gathered together in His name, and He's in our midst. That's a truth, right? He is here. Uh, but Phil, if you were the only one here... You'd probably still say, Pastor Tyler, come on up, but you'd be the only one here. Um, but you still, doesn't mean that the Spirit of God's not here and present with you. Not necessarily even in this room per se, right? He, he lives within us. As we gather together, we together, he, he's in their midst for sure, uh, right? But we remember the context of the verse, and this specifically one gets. Sometimes forgotten as to where it is in the Scripture. And then draws a wrong conclusion. And you got to be careful. I have a new believer and read that text and you were saying, you know, well, when two or three are gathered, my name, he's there. And, oh, well, so then he's not when we're not together. No, that's not what's being said here. Other thoughts or comments?
2: I'm just wondering if it also uh, speaks to the issue of uh, wisdom in a decision-making process here because not
0: just one person by themselves, but God's going to give us wisdom when there's collective gathering of, of uh, those who are dealing with the situation for so the wisdom coming from, from three as opposed to one person being the boss. Very wise statement, Blair. Yes. Psalm 37.4 Take delight in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. If I find joy in God, right, if I find uh, delight, will He fill my life with all the things that I value and enjoy? All right, is this what is this what the intent of Psalm 37 is? That God will just Fill up my life with all these things that are the desires of my heart. So again, remember context and focus. In this psalm, David contemplated the age-old question, why evil people seem to prosper while the righteous often struggle. David wrote to encourage his readers and to encourage us as we read them to widen our perspective, to live in light of eternity, and to set our hope on God's everlasting purposes. So when we commit ourselves, in the sense of the delight, we commit ourselves to God's capable hands, our desire for the righteous to prevail will be realized in His timing. Right, Like He will be working all that out in His timing, in His way. We will come to the realization of those things happening in our life.
1: It's interesting with, with verses like this. We often take it to maybe in our culture to a financial gain or something like that um, that people desire but it's it's an interesting verse because if you delight in the Lord you will desire what he desires you mm-hmm. won't desire financial prosperity necessarily and you won't uh, desire the things of this world and so in fact you will you will receive uh, the desires of your heart but not your fleshly heart, you'll desire the godly desires, the things that, that he desires for us to have and to put our, um, our hope in and, and things like that. So, so I think it is a true verse, but oftentimes we, our, our sinfulness and our flesh still kind of gets in the way, thinking that, that he's going to give us our, our sinful and fleshly desires when he's going to give us our, our godly desires.
2: Graham? Um, this is also a psalm of David, and the first three words, fret not thyself, is repeated, fret not thyself, um, for the evil that's around, right? It's a psalm of David. David is looking for the, the high place to reside in the presence of the Lord, and there's evil all around. And this is just one of the admonitions of delighting in the Lord. just going to say the immediate bookends of that verse give us valuable information that if we're trusting in the Lord, verse three, verse five, if we're committing our way to the Lord, then, as Paul was saying, we will be desiring what the Lord desires.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes. He changes our desires, doesn't he? Romans 8:28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. Any danger in the verse itself? Well, does God control all circumstances in our lives to make things turn out great for us? Right? Is all situations and circumstances designed so that we benefit from it? Is, I guess, the question. So we take a step back and we grasp the glorious truth of Romans 8.28. First, the promise is not for all people. Right? First, it's not for all people. Just... Christians who love and follow Jesus have a desire to do that. Second in the larger contracts, Paul reminds us that although we must temporarily endure earthly suffering, God works through it to continuously work out his his greater eternal plan for us. So the good God is working towards is not temporarily in a temporary earthly success, but an eternal purpose that he's doing in us and being conformed to his likeness is very clearly specific uh, specified in the context right that's what he's working out that we be conformed to the likeness of Jesus
2: you've already said it all but yeah, oh I'm sorry Margaret no, I should have no, let you no, go first no, no it, it's definitely not for our personal good it's for god's good god's glory so that's what we our desire should be is for god's glory
0: Which, interestingly enough, translates to our good, right? His eternal glory does translate into my, I'm a beneficiary of it. So there is the truth of the context, but in grabbing it out of context, we, and again, if we look through the wrong lenses, we're uh, in a danger zone and our theological standing can shift as far as what we believe about God, right? Oh, well, I should, in, I should receive all these blessings from the Lord because that's what is good for me, where that's, you know, we've got to be careful of the context that we're making sure we're in line with what God's saying. All right, we're not going to get through. Uh, I have a few others. We'll look at that next Sunday. Few other verses. If you have some that have come to mind, just email them this week to me. You know, here's a, a verse that I wouldn't mind. Here's just a few. We have uh, a number, I think nine. We'll see if we get through these uh, as far as your interpretation of Scripture. These are keys that are important to help us interpret one piece of Scripture in a way that contradicts another piece of Scripture. So if your interpretation contradicts another part of Scripture, you have likely misinterpreted. Either your context, text, or the piece you're comparing it to, right? Example, Paul says we are saved by faith. But James says we are saved, or, you know, by works, that is what uh, happens, it's the outflow of that. So are they in contradiction to each other? Do they do they stand opposed? And that's where we if we pick this and pick this and they're in opposition, how do we justify, reconcile those things together? Well, obviously we start to dig in to see how in the rest of the scriptures do these things work out right in context. Interpreting a passage in a way that would not have made sense to the Bible's original audience. This is the danger. We'd be careful we don't interpret something with the lenses of today when it was written in the context of people and that day first, that's where we start. That's our starting block, right? This is written to these people. So first, your interpretation only makes sense to those who are living at the time that he was the audience, right? The original audience is important. And so we got to be careful we're not just looking at it from today. The deconstruction problem is that they... Deconstruct. Oh, I'm going to throw out what I was taught and what I've you know know about Scripture, but I'm going to start with the wrong foundation, and that is what's today's culture. What's my lenses? It's today, and then we grab Scripture to pull in uh, to justify those things instead of saying what does Scripture say, and then how does that flesh out, right? So, so if interpretation of a New Testament text would not have made sense to a Jewish Christian living 2,000 years ago, there's a probability it's probably the wrong interpretation. If it only makes sense today and it didn't make sense then, we're in a danger zone of our interpretation, right? Is there any passages that come to mind? Well, if you went through the 90s, then you realize the locusts in the book of Revelation... We're always said to be Apache helicopters. Well, I don't know. I think it's a stretch, right? We're taking something today, right, and, and uh, trying to make it fit into that context. Could it be? Who knows? But uh, we've got to be careful on how we approach those things. Interpret a passage without regard for its genre, its original writing genre. The Bible contains different types of literature, There's history, there's poetry, there's wisdom literature, there's prophecy. Uh, You don't read Matthew the same way you read through Revelation. However, we take what the Bible says as a whole, and the whole thing is Genesis to Revelation is about Jesus Christ. right? The plan of salvation, the redemptive story. We know that that thread runs throughout each, but as we read each book, we have to approach the book in the proper genre that it's been written. Understanding that really helps us in light of our interpretation. It has to be read in that way. Interpret, if the danger is you interpret a passage of Scripture in a way not held by anyone in church history. (laughs) I I don't know know if I'd delve into that, but there is a popular thinking today that really wasn't a part of church history uh, as far as Paul's interpretation of certain things, and uh, that's not been held throughout time in the history of the church so all of a sudden God reveals this new idea well we're on the danger zone of others Joseph Smith and a few others who got some interpretation later on that they they desire so we have got to be careful that we also put it in the context that uh, many followers of the Lord throughout 2,000 years right have been working and through these things so we need to rely heavily on the fact of church history uh, for our cor- correct interpretation. It doesn't mean everyone was right in their interpretation, but as we look at the church history, we have to take that into account for today. Right? There's probably nothing new under the sun as far as Scripture that hasn't been worked out throughout those 2,000 years. Interpret a passage without looking at its context. Context is key. Right? Context includes not only the surrounding passages of the text, but the placement within the book, its placement within the larger theological context of the Bible and its historical and cultural context. So all of these things you begin to add up. I think this is a lot of work. It is a lot of work, right? When we dive in to study the Scriptures, uh, we want to do so, as the Bereans say, right? They want to do it faithfully. And so we do too, right? We want to faithfully understand what God is saying. And so we want to take the time to make sure that we're doing that correct. Never check your interpretation with other Christians. (laughs) Right? Oh, I'm reading through this and it just came to me. This is a great, great interpretation of the Scripture. Well, if we never engage that in some sort of group setting, right? A small group ministry or or et cetera, or with some uh, believers in the discipleship way, it's a good way that we'll wander into error. Right? We'll wander away from really what the passage is saying. Others help keep us kind of in, on track, or at least our, uh, it's the iron sharpening iron scenario that Proverbs gives to us, right? We need to be humble enough to know that we may be wrong, right? And others can help guide us in the interpretation in the community of faith. Interpret a passage in a way that changes the meaning because you do not like what the passage seems to say. Oh, I don't like this, so it must mean something else. And believe me, almost every text is, if you start looking at it, you can change it to mean what you want it to mean. Now all you have to do is go onto YouTube and you can understand that. There's every interpretation possible in a sense because people can put it to what they want it to say as opposed to taking what it says... Without the interpretive gymnastics, right, and make it a straightforward interpretation of the text. This is what it's saying. We're not trying to bend it, we're not trying to interpret it in that it will suit our own thinking, our own needs. Build major doctrines from obscure passages. Right, there's a danger. So you build these these major doctrinal positions from passages that are very obscure. If a hundred passages address the same topic, and one seems not to fit. The danger is we reinterpret the one passage in light of the 99 instead of the other way around. Right? We are to interpret it with the 99 and the one in, the, in that way. Put another way, interpret less clear passages in light of more clear passages, not the other way around. right? Is, we won't dive into it, but 1 Corinthians 15.29 is one of the passages. So, you can look that up, Uh, we can talk and discuss what that looks like, Uh, but there's your passage that is obscure, and in and of itself, if you took that, you can create a whole doctrine, oh wait a minute, I think the Mormons already did, but uh, you can create a whole doctrinal position based on a one obscure passage of Scripture, instead of saying, okay, there's 99 other passages that are on the same wavelength, how do I interpret this in light of that? And we can talk about that passage at some other time. You read the uh, presuppositions onto the text. If you come to the text with clear, conceived notions of what it says, you will uh, presumably misinterpret the text. Try to come to the text, right? understanding what does God say here first, right? What is God saying here? And that's an important thing for us uh, to understand. We want to become familiar with the text. We want to become familiar with the context. We want to understand church history. We want to interpret text with other text in the scriptures. Those things help keep us on track, and we want the opportunity to that's why I like discussion, because we each help each other along. I don't have all the answers. You don't, but the Holy Spirit here to help us in our interpretation, and we can feed off each other on that. He uses each other to do that. We have to be careful, because I know there's Christians out there today that will say, well, this doesn't apply to us, because history that was theirs Um, that was written for them so we can take the book of I'm just going to throw a book Matthew we can throw it out we don't need our Genesis because that was written for them not us and I think that's we have to be careful on that aspect too final thoughts I have about five more next Sunday we'll deal with. And as I say, you're welcome to shoot me your emails as far as the text that you might be We're not here next Sunday. Oh, so who's leading? The week after, two weeks after, week after. All right, Heavenly Father, thank you. We do thank you for your word. And Lord, it, at times it does seem challenging for us to work through Uh, things that have been said, and even doctrinal positions, application to our lives. And it, it does take work, and I thank you for the mystery of your word that helps keep us engaged in it, but we also thank you for the revelation of your word that shows us a clear picture of who you are, your redemptive plan throughout all of history, the Savior Jesus Christ, which is the centerpiece of your Word, and it is found throughout all of Scripture. It all points to you as the the great Messiah, Jesus. And Lord, as we want to be faithful and good stewards of the Word, we want to be students of the Word. We want to learn and understand because we know that the Word is what helps us keep us on track. It's what you use To help us in our spiritual growth and life. Lord, it's how we um, know and understand your will and your workings. And as we see pictures of what you do, it shows us glimpses of yourself. And Lord, it also helps us in our application. What we're to do, how we're to live, and how we're to honor you. And to glorify you, and what our response needs to be. So Lord, may we be faithful to that. May we also take up the challenge, Lord, that we know that we need to do this in community because that really, really helps us along the way as we work together to work it out and as your spirit leads us and directs us and guides us in your word. Thank you for tonight and for our discussion. In Jesus' name, amen.